Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, everyone. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you today. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And I guess we are all waiting for this Russian invasion of Ukraine. That's what the president keeps saying, President Biden. Of course, he's, he said that all last week. It was going to be Wednesday invasion, and that didn't happen. Then he said again it's going to be in a couple of days. Then yesterday he was an hour late in his news conference on a late Friday afternoon, which is suboptimal for media coverage, but whatever. Then he said for sure in the next day or two. So he keeps predicting an invasion. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. The... The Ukraines in Kiev, Zelensky, they're singing a different tune, but perhaps the Russians are going to invade. They seem to be well positioned to invade. It's interesting. The latest from the administration is they're going to go after the capital of Ukraine, Kiev or Kiev. It used to be they're going to go after the eastern part of the country, which is where the Russian-speaking people are. Of course, that doesn't mean that they like Putin. The Russian-speaking people in Ukraine doesn't necessarily mean they like Putin, which is an interesting wrinkle on this that I don't hear many people talking about. But if you talk to people who are from that area, they will tell you uh, Kiev may not be perfect. Zelensky ain't perfect. Uh, it's a democracy, but it isn't a pure democracy. He jailed his opponent, so we don't like that. But... This is a new wrinkle. So if, go, if they take Kiev, it's essentially they're taking over the country. And um, I certainly will acknowledge that we can't stand by. We, the United States and NATO, uh, let Russia just kind of sweep through and start invading sovereign lands. I don't want any boys, any American uh, people, men, women, I don't want to see any of them on the ground, that's for sure. And, of course, the Ukrainians are pretty good fighters. So, I mean, this is all up in the air. I, we will have uh, Senator Bill Haggerty at the 11 o'clock hour. He will be on. He's an expert in foreign policy. He was a former ambassador to Japan. He's now a U.S. senator from Tennessee and so forth. He'll talk this through. I would just say what I've said from day one. You know, all of Biden's diplomacy will have failed if the Russians do, in fact, invade. So Biden is broadcasting his own failure. I don't understand why he insists on predicting this. If it happens, it happens. But what I do know for sure is that many months ago, he should have imposed sanctions, both banking sanctions as well as energy sanctions, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. He should have imposed sanctions on Russia, really right from the start when they started massing 100 or 150,000 troops uh, on the eastern Ukraine border. I mean, I don't. I, to this day, I do not understand that we look so weak, 
We are reactive. We are ambiguous. We've let Putin control this narrative. We've let Putin control the timing of all this. I mean, even now, it seems to me what Biden should be doing, instead of holding more press conferences or holding more phone calls or hoping that uh, Secretary of State Blinken can meet with uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov uh, next week, I think they mentioned the 24th, the invasion may be well on by the 24th. Just, he should have sent a written statement. It's diplomatic terms. It's called a demarche. A written statement that says, by a date certain, if your troops are not back in their barracks by, let's say, March 1st, okay, two weeks from now, if you're not back in your barracks by March 1st, then on March 1st, we will impose severe banking sanctions. We will take you off of the SWIFT worldwide transaction system. It's a dollar-based system. 90% of the transactions are in dollars. Your commercial banks, your central bank, your oligarchs who own the commercial banks uh, and oligarchs who own uh, the oil facilities, the oil companies, including the pipeline, they will be sanctioned. No transactions will be permitted. And, of course, we would restore the sanctions on Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which never should have been lifted in the first place. It was a gift to Putin and a very dumb thing a year ago. Where's that? Why wait? Okay, diplomacy is about sanctions. War is about war, but they should have put the sanctions on. Biden should have announced them Friday, but he didn't. He says, if you invade, that sentence, if you invade, that clause has been around from day one of this. I don't know when this started. When Last summer, I think it started. In any case, Biden has looked weak. America has looked weak. Putin looks clever and stronger. All of this stuff, I think, harkens back to the catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was such a great embarrassment to the United States. The whole world was watching. Make no mistake about it. It's not just about Russia. I mean, China's watching. After the Olympics, who knows what they're liable to do if Russia invades Ukraine. Is China going to invade Taiwan? I don't know. But uh, they're licking their chops, you can be sure of that, as the United States looks weak. Iran is watching. I mean, we're over there. We have diplomats desperately trying to make a nuclear deal with Iran. It's just utter nonsense, utter nonsense. Bunch of liars, cheaters, terrorists, financing terrorism throughout the Middle East. Our greatest ally, Israel, is bitterly opposed to any new deals with, uh, with Iran. We've learned, we should have learned but we haven't learned. They're all watching. North Korea's watching. All our cutthroat, armed-to-the-teeth enemies are watching what we do. And right now, we've done nothing except have a president who every other day makes a forecast that Russia's going to invade Ukraine. I, I mean, I don't understand the word of it. I've never seen anything so silly. It isn't silly. It's tragic because it has such important consequences to the position of the United States on the world scene. 
Now, look at uh, here at home, Joe Biden is doing everything he can to help Vladimir Putin. I put it in those stark terms. This whole climate change, Green New Deal, left-wing, anti-capitalist approach that permeates the Biden administration, they are using every regulatory agency to destroy our energy industry, our fossil fuel energy industry, which is the best in the world by far. At exactly the moment when we should be gearing up and producing more and more oil and natural gas and exporting LNG to Europe, for example. Just this past week, FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, slapped on climate change, environmental regulations that will essentially prevent any new pipelines from being built. Any new pipelines. How insane is that? So we in the Northeast will continue to import oil and natural gas from, you guessed it, Russia, because they're going to stop pipelines. It's bad enough the states stop pipelines. Now FERC has stepped in. The Security Exchange Commission is now slapping climate regulations and red tape in order to prevent in order to prevent banks and corporations, think fossil fuel companies, from developing any oil and gas. Preventing the Federal Reserve, this uh, Sarah Bloom Raskin, the appointee to the Federal Reserve, who's going to be in charge of bank supervision, a rabid, rabid Green New Dealer, climate change fanatic, who has said publicly again and again that she would like to to divert bank capital and bank loans away from fossil fuel companies, that the Federal Reserve's emergency bailouts during the height of the pandemic in 2020, none of that should should have gone to the fossil fuel companies. And of course, you've got all these Wall Street guys, Larry Fink, and his crew, these big index mutual funds, they are diverting money away from the fossil fuel companies. Of course, that doesn't stop them from going investing in China, but they're telling all these big index fund companies, do not invest in fossil fuel companies. We are destroying, Biden is destroying our fossil fuel industry. We were energy dependent a little more than a year ago. Front page story of the Wall Street Journal The frackers are not exceeding, you know, they're just keeping level. There are barrels per day, 11 million barrels per day. We did 13 million barrels per day before the pandemic. Why? Because the entire Biden government is against them. The FERC, the SEC, the Federal Reserve, their Wall Street pals. This is playing right into Vladimir Putin's hands, right? Right into his hands. It strengthens his energy position. It weakens ours. Guy's probably got a big smile on his face. How stupid are the Americans? And of course, none of the science supports this kind of panicked, 
approach, and there is no substitute. Renewable fuels will never be sufficient. We will destroy this economy. We will cause millions of layoffs. The GDP will implode. Inflation will blow sky high because there's not enough fossil fuel energy. Supplies dwindle. Prices go up. People pay it at the pump. Gasoline up 40% from a year ago. So I, I don't get this, folks. I have never seen anything more stupid, more consistently stupid. Not only are we afraid to impose diplomatic sanctions, not only are we afraid to pose, impose deadlines, but here at home we're destroying our industry. Oil and gas and coal. Instead of promoting the greatest industry in the world, we could be doing so much. That would send Putin a message. We could supply Europe, no problem. But no, 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 we're, gonna not, we're not going to export LNG. We're not going to build pipelines. We're not going to let the banks finance these companies. It's just the nuttiest thing I've ever seen. I've got to take a quick commercial break. I'm going to come on the other side. I want to talk some more about this, and I want to talk some more about the inflation story, which is still public enemy number one. Anyway, I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. I believe in America first. I believe in America first. Right now, Joe Biden is promoting America last. It's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. This is Larry Kudlow, Larry Kudlow Show. So we're talking about this crazy effort to end fossil fuels at exactly the wrong time. I mean, exactly the wrong time. Putin has a big smile on his face. By the way, Russia could impose sanctions on itself. I don't know if anybody's considered that. My pal Kevin Hassett talked about that on the Fox Business Show, Kudlow. I mean, they they could just shut off energy exports. Natural gas, oil, that would just blow the thing sky high. Oil is $91 and rising. It would go through 100 It would go to 150 I hate to say that, but, um, but that's, uh, that's what would happen. Meanwhile, inflation is still public enemy number one. Despite the Ukraine, whatever happens there, inflation is public enemy number one. And we had some very bad inflation numbers this week. For example... Import prices now rising at 11%. That's probably a leading indicator. The January reading was plus 11% for the 12 months ending in January. That's probably a leading indicator for domestic prices. We had a wholesale price report. The producer price index was up uh, almost 10%. And, of course, the consumer price index was up 7.5%. Any of these energy upsets are going to make that run uh, faster. But the real problem, of course, is too much federal spending. Too much federal spending. And too much Federal Reserve central bank money supply creation. They keep buying bonds. They keep injecting more money into the economy. They're essentially financing the deficit spending coming from the government. And crazily enough, the Biden administration wants more. The liberals in Congress want more. 
you know, big government socialism. There's this $350 billion bill on the table that supposedly competes with China. It will do no such thing. It's just a big corporate welfare giveaway, industrial policy, state-run subsidization, picking winners and losers. It's like we're going to out-China China. Well, we won't. We won't. America runs on free market economics, free market entrepreneurship. $200 billion of private investment, $200 billion of private investment is going into the semiconductor chip industry. We don't need any government money. We do it through the private sector with its technological advances and its creativity and its innovation. Then there's another one, another one, 30 billion more for COVID. We don't need that. All, all these relief packages, there's $800 billion of unspent money so far, according to the uh, Maya McGinnis's group, the Committee for Responsible Budget. I mean, the spending continues and the inflation continues. We've got Ways and Means uh, leader Kevin Brady coming on uh, at the half hour. Cut the spending. You know, we heard last weekend Senator Phil Graham was on talking about pause spending, reform welfare, meaning put workfare back into welfare so people go back to work, and then the Fed has got to shut down the money supply, and they're going to have to raise interest rates. And all the indications are they're going to be they're going to do that meekly. They should be taking giant steps, a full regime change. It should be 50 basis points increase in their target rate right away, maybe 100 basis points. They've got to shake out this new price and wage spiral, which is beginning now to become embedded in the economy. Too much federal spending, and Biden and the big government socialists want even more. And middle-class people and lower-income people are getting murdered by this. More people are working. Yes, that's great. Wages are going up. I think that's great. The trouble is inflation's going up so much that real incomes are coming down. So the economy right now is on an inflationary high, but it won't last. And eventually the Fed will take away the punch bowl. They'll get around to it. It may take them a year or two. And that will bring on a dreaded recession. So here, too, the Biden economic policy is an abject failure. Abject failure. And he has no inflation plan. You know, he blames businesses. Ah, oh, come on. Anyway, we got Kevin Brady on the other side. He's former chair of the Ways and Means Committee. We'll talk about inflation. We'll talk about this phony war and why it is we're destroying our best fossil fuel industry, the best in the world. I'm Larry Cabo, folks. Please stick around. So much more to do. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. By the way, join us during the week on Fox Business. The name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day. And if you can't... Uh, if you can't make it at four, get your favorite nine-year-old to DVR the show so you'll never miss a thing. We just had our one-year anniversary. It's been a great year. 
and it's been a successful year. So come along in the afternoons. Anyway, we've got a great friend, Congressman Kevin Brady from Texas, ranking member of the House Ways and Means Committee. Good morning, Kevin. Thank you. More, hey, good morning, Larry. So it's been a year. Congratulations. Yeah, it's been a year. Wow, and, uh, it's been great. I'm, I'm still standing or still sitting or something. Oh, man. You're um, right in your element all the time. <laughs> You're just made for this. <laughs> and, you know, the thing's done well. The ratings have really done well, so it's a blessing. All no things a blessing. So, Kevin, I, I want to talk about inflation and so forth, but, you know, you're watching this um, this whole Putin-Russian-Ukraine drama. Uh, every other day, Biden is predicting an invasion of the Ukraine. A and meanwhile, he's doing everything he can to slaughter our domestic energy industry. We just had this FERC regulations. You probably saw yeah. it. Uh, and we'll probably never build a new, another new pipeline in this country ever again because they're superimposing climate and environmental changes in ways that nobody ever intended. I mean, what do you think about this whole story? Yeah, it seems it seems incredible that that as we're facing Russia, he continues these attacks on American-made energy. And you're right; there's no question these new rules uh, are going to drive prices up. It, it is going to discourage investment in, in U.S. energy and getting it to where it needs to get for refining and, and delivery back out to folks. And, and you, you can't help but think, wouldn't it be great if we had a president who put America's interests ahead of Russia in other foreign countries? But when it comes to energy, it's it's consistently anti-American in that approach. And, and yet he decries inflation as he's driven it uh, upward. And now as Congress, the Democrats are now talking through a gimmick, you know, suspending the gas tax, a gas, <clears throat> fuel prices that they help drive up in a major way. And then, yeah, obviously I have to ask the question, what about all the food prices, the clothing prices, the housing price, everything else their policies have driven up? So, yeah, it just seems it seems that I, and I don't understand the policies except there is this Green New Deal, you know, approach that infects everything in the administration, from trade to domestic policies to taxes. You know, uh, the Green New Deal, so-called, is itself inflationary because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, what are you doing here? You're cutting back on the supply of fossil fuels, which is whatever it is, 75% of our energy. You're cutting back on that which jacks up the price, which will raise the inflation rate. Now, you're right. The inflation is spread all throughout the economy, and that's what these price indexes show. Uh, the diffusion indexes, I mean, probably 75% of the prices are going up. But it's just odd to me. Take the Federal Reserve. You've got this woman, Sarah Bloom Raskin, mm. who would be the top supervisor, uh, who has said during 2020 the Fed – Emergency lending should not help fossil fuel companies. She would like to divert bank capital and bank credit away from fossil fuel companies. The SEC is waging war against fossil fuel companies. FERC is waging war against fossil fuel companies. I mean, there isn't a certain insanity here, and we have nothing uh, to replace them with, nothing with which to replace them. The renewable fuels is still a tiny amount of our energy. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't get this, and I, I would think... Kevin Brady, that 
that Putin, Vladimir Putin, looking at this would have a big smile on his face, you know, a big smile on his face. Can you imagine if the roles were reversed? If we in America are watching Russia uh, and its leader, you know, destroy its own uh, energy production, delivery, transmissions uh, in the country, we, we would be stunned by it. Yet he's he has uh, uh, the opportunity to watch this happen here at home. And, and there's more of that, Larry. So I know in the president's budget, you know, he's talked a lot about infrastructure, but they have a standing order not to not to support infrastructure in ports that expand cargo for oil and gas. So they did discourage that. Their new letter of the governors, which is don't use your infrastructure funding to increase road capacity, just maintain what we have, which makes no sense in growing states like Texas and Florida and others. And it's just on and on and on. Again, I don't think it gets the the, the, the media attention it deserves because it's just so so anti-growth uh, here in the U.S. Yeah, they've really pulled the rug out. I mean, we didn't really, we weren't thrilled about the infrastructure bill to begin with. But just as you say, in terms of bridges, roads, and tunnels, uh, they pulled the rug out using environmental and uh, endangered species, no new roads, no no unplanned growth. It is aimed, you're right, it's aimed at Texas, red states like Texas and Florida, successful states. Um, that whole business about, you know, the, the NEPA permitting reforms that we had in the Trump years, uh, that's been overridden. The one federal decision idea has been overridden uh, by these new climate, environmental, endangered species rules. They've completely undermined it. They have. And I think, too, as you, you made note of Green New Deal, the whole the whole the whole philosophy behind the Green New Deal is drive up energy prices for everyone as high as you can, kill off the oil and gas industry as quickly as you can. Uh, and that that's what dr- it drives inflation in such a big way right now. The other thing I worry about, and you're, you're more knowledgeable than me here, but I really worry about the, 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 the we may be on the verge or in a wage price spiral because mm. it just seems like housing hasn't yet hit our inflation measurements uh, wage inflation is accelerating obviously we know real wages are down and the labor market is awfully tight and it, it is just that's a spiral no country wants to find themselves in and certainly for the fed you know all all of those spirals end badly uh for the economy and for workers so i that's that keeps me up at night yeah i think of it as a price wage spiral because I think all the federal spending and money supply growth has jacked up prices. And as people come back to work and the labor markets are relatively tight, they're just trying to keep up, Kevin. Yeah. They're just trying to yeah. keep up with prices. And uh, the, the end result is the same. you got an inflationary spiral. But the prices have come first. The wages have come second. They're still losing ground. Real, As you know, real wages are, yeah. are still coming down. Um, You know, what's interesting, I wanted to raise this with you. Some of the older Clinton, Obama, Democrat economists are turning against Biden. Uh, One of them this past week said that, um, yeah, there's some pandemic inflation and supply shortages. But he makes a great point is that all the government spending, which has been financed by the Fed, Mm-hmm. has created over-consumer spending 
And that's one reason for the supply chain problems. There's too much consumer demand, you know, stimulated artificially uh, by these um, by this budget spending. Yeah, and I noticed even Mark Sandy, Vandy, which is the president's preferred economic <laughs> forecaster, admitted right. that breaking off Build Back Better in chunks will be inflationary uh, as well, which which we know it will. The other thing that worries me, too, more recent news as well, is this thought in the Senate that they're going to revive these tax hikes because that, too, can be uh, inflationary. Those When you raise the cost of doing business, you know, uh, it, it can get – spread onto customers if if the market allows it, which it does right now. Certainly, shareholders take a hit, but those workers in those uh, businesses, you know, have uh, higher taxes and a higher burden as a result, all of which, I think, discourage work, again, uh, and, and uh, contribute to a, much, uh, a worse economy and, I think, higher prices over time. I also think businesses continue to see that $1.2 trillion in tax hikes looming over them. And I and I do believe it's had some uh, chilling impact effect on their investment decisions here mm. over the past year. Certainly, you know where where to locate, you know those new plants, that new investment, the new technology, all of which I think affect the supply chain in some way. Yeah, I think um, folks know businesses know the cavalry is coming, but the cavalry can't really arrive until November. Yeah. So yeah. in the mean, so so you're saying. Uh, in the Senate, Build Back Better may not be completely dead. The tax hikes may not be completely dead. I hope that's wrong. I uh, do, too. I, I think do too. we the bill, but I'm not yeah, sure. We're, we're staying vigilant. We're keeping on our toes here because even a, quote, slim-down package, $1.5 or so, will include the harshest tax hikes uh, that the, the president has proposed. So we are... We're continuing to uh, to fight the tax hikes, both in the House and the Senate, and uh, it's not dead till it's till till this session's over. You know, I would think if you're worried about inflation, you would want lower taxes and lower regulations, which would stimulate the supply side of the economy. So you'd have more money chasing more goods. You would think. In this you case, would, it's would... more money chasing fewer goods. Yeah, not you good. Know, no, and, and even if you didn't have an economic philosophy, which would be the president, I'm pretty sure, uh, certainly you had to notice that because of wage inflation, a lot of families found themselves in a different and higher tax bracket. And one estimate from CBO is added about $1,500 in additional taxes on top of the $3,500 or so they paid in, in higher costs to buy the same prices. So at the very least, you would think keeping taxes low, both on, on the supply side and on families would be the ideal approach here. Kevin, hang with me. I've got to take a quick commercial break. I want to come out on the other side and talk about how to end deficit spending, which really right. should be the policy of a responsible administration, how to yep. end deficit spending. Folks, we're talking to Congressman Kevin Brady of Texas is a ranking member of the House Ways and Means Committee. Probably no one in the country more responsible for the Trump tax cuts than Mr. Brady. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back after this brief message. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. 
Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We're talking with Congressman Kevin Brady of Texas. He's the ranking member of the House Ways and Means Committee. Um, Kevin, the newspapers are reporting that um, President Biden's State of the Union, which I guess is March 1st or mm-hmm. something, is going to really talk about inflation. Now, I'm going to guess he's going to blame businesses and business collusion and drug companies and antitrust. How about this? How about a new policy that cuts spending, that cuts deficit spending and tries to move towards a balanced budget? How about that? Yeah, that would be the right course correction here. I think if you look at his eight years in the Obama administration, they blamed George Bush up until the day they left office. So that's his go-to response on almost everything. We saw that inflation and the work shortage, labor shortage, and everything else this past year. So I, I like you. I expect him to continue that approach. But the better approach would be to say, look, um, I know this government spending is helping drive this inflation. We're going to end all the COVID emergency programs now. I mean, and, and recoup the, the money that hasn't yet been spent. Uh, that would be the, the immediate smart thing, we're out of this COVID emergency, but for the testing and the treatments and therapies that they took their eye off of last year, you know, that is the role they can play right now. Uh, because if we don't, in the, the second thing I ought to say is, and I'm not going to allow that to become, be part of the baseline of our federal budget, because as you know, all that emergency spending, spending tends to be get in the baseline, tax relief doesn't. And so coupled with inflation, which will drive up spending automatically on its own in future years, including next year, um, you know, he could address that right from the beginning. We, we are going to get all that emergency spending and inflation uh, uh, of the budget out of the budget. That would be a great place to start. Yeah, I mean, it'd be a good Republican cry to talk about the need to cut spending. I mean, it's it's not just to prevent defense. But to yep. actually cut spending, yep. uh, Russ Vote, the Trump's uh, former budget director, said, if you pass the appropriations bill, now they haven't done that, but the CBO baseline would raise it, you know, current services, discretionary spending would go up by $250 billion in the next year, 16% increase over 10 years, it would be about $2.5 trillion. In other words... That's the problem. To clarify it, Kevin, you know what I'm saying? To just, yep. he, here's his problem. Stop spending. You know, Phil Graham said this on this radio show last weekend. He called it pause spending and reform welfare to put back the workfare programs. I mean, I would think you could rally Republicans on that. And eventually you want to move towards a balanced budget, not with tax hikes, but with tax cuts. Yeah, there's no question about that. And I think, to Senator Graham's point, that, look, right now, if we really want to tackle these issues in a big way, um, you know, if we want to compete with China around the world, we'd make our tax cuts permanent to keep U.S. Mm-hmm. very competitive. Mm-hmm. We would, uh, as Republicans have, have, have introduced the bills, uh, return the work requirement to all of our welfare programs, including the child tax credit, which has had a big issue, uh, that we wouldn't fund. We would end government funding of private companies. His point is there's so much, so many subsidies in the Build Back Better and the infrastructure bills that subsidize companies, but at great cost to the deficit. You know, that those are just key 
movements that Republicans ought to be uh, championing. In the um, Kevin McCarthy's putting together whatever yeah. it's called, the, the new yeah. contract with America, I don't know, whatever yeah. that thing's called. Uh, yeah. Were you able to get in making the Trump tax cuts uh, permanent? We did. We proposed that to the, the new commitment uh, to America there. Right. So he's got a good process going on that really draw, that brings all the elements of the Republican House together. So they're still continuing that in those six task forces. But the Ways and Means Committee you know, developed our priorities for 2022 and 2023 uh, for that agenda. Uh, they haven't completed their work yet, but uh, obviously uh, expanding economic freedom has to start with making those tax cuts permanent. Mm. I think um, I just come back to this. I mean, I'm a supply sider. I'm a tax cutter. But I think the problem in the last couple of years has been overspending. And I think we need to launch a full scale attack on it. It's like, say, Biden, no. It's not about businesses colluding. It's not about pharmaceutical companies. It is about energy. But you've got to stop spending, pal. You've, yep. <laughs> you've got to stop yep. spending. Spend, and, and the Federal Reserve is going to have to, you know, if you stop spending, then at least the Fed won't have to accommodate more spending. I yep. mean, that's yep. one of the problems. I, I mean, I think there's a link between federal spending and, and all this, you know, M2 growth. And the only way that happens is for Republicans to take back the House. Because right. even though the president has a veto pen, Congress has the power of the purse. And and that's where we can start, stop uh, this just radical socialist agenda, and we can stop the spending that's driving so much of inflation. And, and I'm really pleased a Texan, Kay Granger, first Republican woman to lead appropriations, will have that pen. And she is she's mm. tough on defense and the border and mm. – uh, stuff on spending. So, yeah, I expect a, a wholesale change in, in uh, the checks and balances in Washington. I got to get her on the, the TV show, Kay Green. Yeah, that's no, right. she's a terrific leader. Um, what about the China Compete Bill? $350 billion. Now, I ask you, Kevin Brady, in the midst of this inflation, in the midst of this overspending, seriously, how can Congress consider a $350 billion bill? Honestly, corporate welfare, corporate welfare. It is all that. One, another misnamed bill in, (laughs) in Washington under this president. It does nothing to be beyond all the spending and all the subsidies. Uh, to companies, it does nothing to confront uh, China's predatory trade practices. It does nothing to counter their aggression around the world economically. It doesn't even insist on holding them accountable for the commitments they made uh, in the Trump administration, which are, are the first significant real commitments uh, and specific actions China's ever been forced to do. So it is. It does nothing to to compete. With China, I think just the opposite. 18 Republican senators voted for it. 18. Yeah, Tears. I think I think the <laughs> challenge is there are individual elements in there that, that they put a bipartisan support together. In fact, some of the trade elements in the Senate bill is, prob- is, is the route we ought to go. But okay. um, I, I, this, okay. is not a, this is not a China bill. 
Kevin Brady, thank you, sir. We appreciate it. Folks, I'm Kudlow. We're going to take a break. Come right back on the other side. Rudy Giuliani here for Monetary Gold. America is now $30 trillion in debt. Think about that. $30 trillion. Your great, great, great grandchildren can never pay that back. Democrats are looking for revenue to help finance their multi-trillion dollar climate and social welfare programs. Fox Business reported that the IRA is under attack. CNBC says that the government already owns a piece of your traditional 401k or IRA. Retirement funds are in the crosshairs by Dems who want access to the estimated $21 trillion in retirement accounts. There's one way to protect your money. Diversify into gold. Call Monetary Gold at 1-888-204-2141 and get their free protection guide. They're giving up to $5,000 of free gold and silver to the first 12 qualified callers. Monetary Gold is A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau, a top five gold company on consumer affairs and has been in business for 20 years. Call 1-888-204-2141 or visit monetarygold.com. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We now turn to this whole Putin-Russia-Ukraine-Biden mess. Mess is what I'm going to call it. And we bring in Senator Bill Haggerty of Tennessee, his former ambassador to Japan, foreign policy expert, among his other things. Uh, Senator Haggerty, thank you, sir, for coming on. Appreciate it. Larry, it's always great to be with you. It's just such a tragic time, though, that we've got to be talking about the situation in Ukraine. I I feel deeply for them, particularly now that Kamala Harris has been sent to, uh, to take care of things in Europe. Uh, I, I think uh, Zelensky is extremely worried. The president of Ukraine must be, be, be very discomforted knowing that Kamala Harris has been put in charge of this now as well. Yeah, I know. It just That was really not, not a good news item. I mean, no, after no, her, great, her terrific handling of the border crisis down yeah, south. The southern border, she's done such a good job with our American southern border. Now she's going to go there to protect Ukraine's border. It's ridiculous. <laughs> God, I just, it's surrealistic. This whole thing's existential. Um, would you tell me why <clears throat> President Biden feels compelled uh, almost every day to predict that there's an invasion coming. I mean, even if he, I don't know what the intel is saying. He gets his briefings, you know, top secret briefings in the morning. The intel may be telling him that. But why does he have to say it publicly? And then, as Senator, why is he not imposing sanctions, you know, putting timelines on things like March 1st, if your troops aren't back in the barracks, we're going to, cut off the banking system. We're going to cut off Nord Stream 2. I don't understand the strategy here. Well, um, I, ca- I can answer the first part, why he's talking publicly about it. I, c- I can't answer the second, because what you just said is exactly what you would advise President Trump. That's exactly why this wouldn't have been happening under President Trump's leadership when you were in office. But let's go back to why Biden's saying this right now, why he continues to warn that Ukraine is about to invade. Um, Secretary Blinken has said this publicly. It's not classified information, but they're very concerned about what they call false flag operations coming from Russia, basically suggesting that people of Russian descent, people who speak Russian language within Ukraine, are being mistreated. Therefore, Vladimir Putin has to go in and rescue them. So what what I think is happening here is you've got Biden, you've got Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, warning that Russia is indeed preparing to and intending to invade. I think they're trying to sort of put a pierce 
pierce that um, balloon of uh, you know a false flag that that Putin could, could put forward, trying to defuse that argument. Um, I actually think that's probably the best hand they can play on that front right now. But you're exactly right. What he could do, what Biden could do today, and he should have done it months ago, certainly weeks ago, is he could begin to give Vladimir Putin a taste of what's to come. Mm. Keeps you know talking about sanctions, and Putin's heard plenty of tough talk coming out of this administration. What they need to see now is American resolve. He should basically step up today and put an end to any progress on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. That's the most frustrating thing to me of all. He can go ahead and begin the sanctioning process, whether he wants to sanction individuals, for example, sanction Russian mineral extraction, the the things that he could begin to do now that still leave plenty of room to move forward. But that would let Vladimir Putin know that America indeed is going to stand strong, that we do demonstrate our resolve. But Biden cannot seem to do that. I want to come back to that point, but just on the issue of the false flag, it just seemed to me in recent days the threat of an invasion into the uh, Kiev capital. Now, before it was mostly seemed like it was the issue of eastern Ukraine, Russian-speaking people living. Now, those people who speak Russian don't necessarily want to come under Vladimir Putin's uh, thumb, but now uh, the rhetoric is about invading Kiev, which is a big change. I mean, that suggests that they want to take over the whole country. It's an extremely um, big move if Putin decides to do that. It will be very costly to him, regardless of what we might do. I'll say this, though, and this underscores why President Trump was right to press hard on NATO allies. Uh, back beginning in 2017, that they should step up, that they should fulfill their commitments, that they should be more of a force, because the European allies in NATO have underinvested in their own defense. They've created a vulnerability, and now they're more concerned about themselves than, than keeping their neighborhood cleaned up. And you know, I, I think that Putin has basically seen the weakness from NATO. He's seen an opening with the U.S. administration because of, again, the, the, the Biden's administration's sheer incompetence at every level. And I think he just feels this is time to move. And how far he'll move, I don't know. Again, if he goes all the way, all the way to Kiev, it'd be extremely costly to maintain that. Um, it, it's, uh, it's, I guess, really only one person's decision right now, and that's Vladimir Putin, because Biden has proven himself incapable of dissuading him. Um, Senator Haggerty's got troops in Belarus, which is awfully close. You know, the border there is awfully close to Kiev. Yes, yeah, so they, they even talked about um, there's some activity of building bridges and things of that nature where they could easily or more easily access the region. So Putin is definitely increasing the threat, and he's negotiating every day. I, I'd say this about the negotiation, Larry, if you put it into poker terms, every card that Vladimir Putin has been dealt from Joe Biden has been a face card. Mm. You go all the way back to the beginning. You know, President Trump held back on the New START Treaty. He was trying to bring more of the, the other non-conventional weapons into the into the fold, broaden the treaty, trying to put pressure on Putin. And we weren't going to give them an extension of that treaty without getting something for it. You know, it, you, you have Joe Biden come to the table. He immediately extends the treaty for five years, giving getting nothing in return. Mm. And then the, the probably the, the next and really bad thing is that Russian hackers attack our colonial pipeline here in America. There are no repercussions for them. In fact, you have... Joe Biden show up with a list of 17 industries that he demands that Vladimir Putin not attack. Larry, that probably means that industry number 13 that was on the list that Vladimir Putin hadn't thought of just went straight on the hit list. 
Uh, and mm. what does it say about the rest of the, the rest of the industries that um, you know that that weren't listed there? Probably the most the most impactful though, and this is an indirect effect. But that's when Biden decided to wage war on the oil and gas industry here in America. He killed the Keystone XL pipeline. He stopped drilling here in America, and energy prices around the world have soared. That's been a massive windfall to Vladimir Putin. All of this disruption has actually enabled Putin, the, the, the second largest producer of energy in the world is Russia, has allowed him to incur a massive windfall. We're funding this operation if you step back and think of it that way. Mm-hmm. That's right. We are. We are funding this. Instead of increasing supplies here, we are reducing supplies. There's a front page story in the journal today that um, the frackers are not increasing supplies. And I think you you probably saw... FERC is now waging war against pipelines. The SEC is waging war against the fossil fuel companies. They're trying to nominate, uh, to put in, uh, confirm the Sarah Bloom Raskin as the chief bank supervisor at the Federal Reserve. She wants to stop loans going to uh, fossil fuel companies. So they're doing everything they can to cut back on our supplies and decimate our energy industry. Yes, it's it's terrible. And, you know, in 2017, when President Trump came in, America finally became energy independent again. And when I was ambassador to Japan, I encouraged the Japanese strongly to buy our liquid natural gas, our LNG. We actually were exporting, you know, economic benefits, but also we were exporting national security because nations like Japan were depending on other nations that certainly don't have their best interest at heart. It was an it was an element of our national security strategy, a clear element to be able to increase our, our LNG production, much cleaner LNG than comes out of Russia, and be able to come to the aid of anybody that might be threatened by somebody like Vladimir Putin, who can use now energy as a geopolitical weapon. The completion of Nord Stream 2 is going to basically hand, you know, hand Russia a huge political weapon over all of Europe because now Vladimir Putin can have his foot on the throat of the energy supply there. We could have countered all of that. Your key point, we got to take a quick break, Senator, and then we'll come right back with you on the other side. But your key point is basically Biden energy policies are financing Putin. You are so right. Just in right. stark terms, that is exactly right. And that is a tragedy. And that has nothing to do with America first. That's America last. We're talking to Senator Bill Haggerty of Tennessee, former ambassador to Japan, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a very quick break. And when we come back on the other side, we're going to talk some more about this. I want to talk about cyber warfare, Russia versus Ukraine, Russia versus the United States. Anyway, I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here talking with uh, Senator Bill Haggerty of Tennessee, former uh, ambassador to uh, Japan during the Trump administration. Um, Senator, can we just, uh, I want to add this uh, cyber war that I'm reading about, Russia waging cyber war against the Ukraine, which could be crippling. And then, of course, the threat is that Russia will wage cyber war against the United States. Russia's already done both. They in- initiated what they call a distributed denial of service there in Ukraine. They can hit the Ukrainian military. They can hit their banking system. They can hit, you know, a, a number of public utilities infrastructure there could, that can be extraordinarily disruptive. And they've already given Ukraine a taste of that. But frankly, Larry, we talked about this in the previous segment. They've given the United States a taste of it as well when they allowed their hackers to hit the 
colonial pipeline here in America. We had lines at the gas station, shortages here. Uh, anything like this can be extraordinarily disruptive. And in my view, it's just another element, another aspect of waging war. I mean, Biden is warning that there's going to be um, military action from Ukraine. But in many respects, this sort of cyber warfare is just a, a different flavor of that. Yeah, it's already started. I just want to come back to this business that President Biden yesterday talked about the invasion and talked about the invasion into Kiev, the capital, or Kiev. Um, that's really, I mean, this is Crimea writ large. This is not just eastern Ukraine. You're talking about he's going to take over the entire country. And so if that were the case, what are we going to do about that? What can we do about that? Well, it's it's very hard for Joe Biden to justify moving U.S. troops in there. He's put himself mm -hmm. in a terrible predicament because he's refused to defend our southern border here in America. He's precipitated the greatest national security crisis that we've seen in certainly my lifetime. And then he's turning around and make, trying to make the argument that he should go in and defend Ukraine. I think that's going to be an extraordinarily difficult argument for him to make here in America to send our sons and daughters there when he won't protect our southern border. We have people in Tennessee, Larry, my home state, dying of fentanyl overdoses, and, and, and we have this happening at just record rates since January of 2021 when the, the border collapsed. Uh, we're standing by and letting Americans be killed by illegal activity at our southern border, yet we're talking about helping another country. I think Biden's put himself in a difficult situation. The other side of this is that China is looking at this and thinking that, well, if there's no action on Russia taking all of Ukraine, then there certainly won't be any response to us taking Taiwan. So Biden's mm -hmm. put himself in a very difficult strategic situation here. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to see uh, American troops in Ukraine. That's for sure. But it just kind of struck me that suddenly we're not talking about a slice of the Ukraine. We're talking about Putin taking over all of Ukraine. And that brings me to NATO. And that brings me to Germany, Senator Haggerty. What is Germany? I mean, which side is Germany on? Germany is very difficult. And we've seen the Biden administration side with German industry, if you will, because German industry has been put at a huge disadvantage when after the Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan, the Greens in Germany said, we're going to do away with nuclear energy. And they've dramatically increased the cost of energy for German industry. Uh, they've made German industry less competitive. And what's happened is that the German industrial complex wants to get cheaper access to, to energy. So this Nord Stream 2 pipeline was the answer to that. Uh, President Trump wisely realized the strategic advantage that gives to Putin, not only in terms of giving him more revenues, giving him more access to Western European markets, but also making Ukraine far more far more vulnerable. And that was the reason for the sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Again, Biden came in and, in order to both appease Germany and get them cheaper energy, but also, I think, in a way, um, to show his good nature to Vladimir Putin, uh, he allows them to go ahead and complete that pipeline and put us in a far more dangerous uh, strategic situation there. Um, the, the Germans want to see this this natural gas because they're placing their economic interest over security interest. And frankly, Larry, and it's been frustrating to me for years, the United States has been subsidizing Germany's national security because we have spent, they pick your year, three and a half to five and a half percent of our GDP on defense, whereas Germany can't even meet their obligation of two percent of GDP as a NATO member. They, they have a hard time even getting to one percent. So we, in essence, are subsidizing their national security and they're taking advantage of us in a big way. I mean, when the German, the new German chancellor came here and he had this joint press conference with Biden and Biden talked about sanctioning 
uh, Nord Stream 2, the German chancellor did not support that. He did not say yes. I mean, you know. It was so embarrassing. Right. He just warbled on about this, that, and the other thing. I mean, I don't think Germany is a dependable ally at all. Um, I don't understand the NATO story right now. I mean, I think Putin has just sliced this, uh, our so-called security arrangement. He's just sliced it into two pieces or three pieces or four pieces. Well, he's certainly driven a wedge into it. And again, I'll come back to the fact, though, that a weak America precipitates this type of activity all over the globe. The the Afghanistan situation, Larry, perhaps the most embarrassing um, situation that that we've seen as a nation in my lifetime again, uh, that has invited a tremendous amount of of, uh, activity from our adversaries. You know, since that happened, China has dramatically increased their you know, air forays into Taiwan's airspace. Uh, Putin has seen that and then increased his military activity on the Ukraine border. Uh, we've seen North Korea misbehaving again. Uh, I'm certain that the Iranians are looking at this uh, with great favor. Uh, when we failed in Afghanistan, I think we set a pretext for this sort of disruption around the world. And Joe Biden had the opportunity early on to begin to impose sanctions. I'll come back to that. We don't have to send troops to, to let Russia feel the pain. Mm-hmm. We could have begun to impose sanctions early on and let Putin know there would be consequences, but this administration will not demonstrate resolve. They just want to use words to quote, power of diplomacy, but they won't back it up with strength. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, yesterday at the press conference, or whatever it was with Biden, he should have just laid out the sanctions, just said, here it comes, yes. date certain, bingo. And he didn't do that. Um, I can't, you know, you mentioned Iran. My brain explodes at the thought that the Biden administration is desperately trying to renegotiate some kind of deal with Iran. R- really, my brain explodes at this. Yeah, the notion that Iran is going to be some sort of rational actor <laughs> is just so naive. Uh, it, it, it's absolutely amazing. This is some sort of ego trip, I presume, on behalf of the former Obama administration officials that put us in jeopardy by negotiating the deal in the first place. And if you think about it, Larry, when we came in to office uh, under President Trump, uh, you serving in the White House, I was serving as ambassador to Japan, we imposed what was known as secondary sanctions on Iran. Mm. Uh, Secondary sanctions meaning getting other nations not to do business with Iran, making a very stark opportunity for them. They can either do business with America or they can do business with Iran, but not both. I worked on that very hard to get Japan to stop buying crude from Iran. Wasn't easy, but we got it done. We took Iran's Iran's uh, 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 capital balances from 122 billion down to less than 10 in two years doing that. Now they're up over 30 again because Biden's not not, not uh, enforcing. So we're funding them too. They don't need to negotiate. Senator Bill Haggerty of Tennessee, thank you, sir. Thank, thank you, you very Always much you. for your inputs. Really appreciate it. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk to John Kilduff who is the best energy expert in this country. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you, as always. We continue the discussion now from the energy oil standpoint. One of the things that Senator Haggerty said that was, I think, so on target was that U.S. Biden energy policies, Green New Deal climate change, stopping production, stopping pipelines, using federal regulatory agencies to 
uh, crush our great fossil fuel industry. Well, that's jacked up prices, cut supply, raised prices. We're financing Vladimir Putin and Russia. We're financing them. Anyway, we've got one of America's best energy experts, my pal John Kilduff, founder of the Kilduff Group and publisher of the Kilduff Report and founding partner of Again Capital. John, thank you. How are you? I've been well, Larry. Yourself, it's great to be on with you again. Yes, thank you for doing this. Um, You know, I'm reading the front page of the Wall Street Journal, Above the Fold, Frackers hold back production as global oil market tightens. So we're at 90 or $91 a barrel for West Texas. Brent crude's a little stronger. Uh, why are the frackers holding back production? Partly because of how badly they got burned in the uh, pandemic uh, period, Larry, when oil prices went negative. Uh, all of a sudden, the entire industry was called to account on their uh, spending ways uh, spendthrift spending ways over the years where they just uh, emphasize drilling over return on capital uh, and, and just getting money back to investors. Um, and the, you know, given that they cratered the price of oil, it was maybe too good of a thing going on there for a little while. And so now they're obviously been burned. And so they're slowly uh, coming back uh, to the oil fields, but they never want to let that happen to themselves again. And quite frankly, there's a lot of pressures on them uh, from, you know, these environmental social governance folks uh, the banks, everyone, investors of all stripes are, are making them operate in a much more uh, commercially uh, attractive, if you will, environment. So, again, they're a little chagrined and they're also getting pressured. So that, that's why you're seeing that in part. How much uh, has the Baker Hughes rig count recovered? It's, I, I don't follow it as closely as I used to, but the last time I looked – it was up from the bottom, but it was way, way, way below the peaks, uh, you know, pre-pandemic. Yeah, it's still about half of what it was pre-pandemic, Larry. We have had about 50 rigs come into service some from about November, if you want to just pick a, a date. Uh, and then uh, on yesterday, we got uh, five more rigs put into service. But the previous week, we got 15 oil rigs put into service. So uh, I do think there are signs of life here in the shale patch, uh, does, because despite what I just said to you, to a degree, they cannot help themselves, and I fully expect them uh, to start to uh, to ramp things up, particularly if this oil price persists, and it looks like it is, given the uh, strong demand globally and the refusal, basically, of Saudi Arabia to uh, to tap their uh, spare capacity and put more oil on the market. Yeah, so we're, um, we're around $90 plus. Uh, what's, the, you know, what's your outlook for oil prices? Well, I don't think it's as dire uh, a situation as I know some of the folks are out there saying. Um, I can tell you, you know, for example, Ed Morrison, Citigroup, former uh, uh, undersecretary of state there for President Carter, probably the first energy secretary. He's got mm. a $60 price target by the uh, towards the late, latter part of the year, oh. for example. Of course, yeah. But of course, uh, some of the other banks have, you know, are, are you know into the stratosphere. Uh, I I think you know. At this point, just from a trading perspective, we have to ring the bell on 100. Uh, It's something that the market is just going to continue to sort of have a fever about and push towards, push towards, push towards until we get it. And then we can reassess from there. The the good news for consumers is that we're coming into a part of the year 
where a demand necessarily declines because we lose the heating fuel demand. And that's a very thankful situation for the Europeans and the Ukrainians here uh, as, as well. Uh, and then we got to sort of see where we'll set up for the summer driving season, uh, Larry. But I don't necessarily think we're going to make new highs on oil like we did back in 2008 when we went to 147. Mm. Uh, could we go to 110, 115? Yeah, absolutely. But I'm also uh, you know, cognizant uh, of the argument here, and there are other barrels coming to market and coming online, especially from U.S. shale, that could surprise us uh, over the course of the next couple of months here that uh, could help to alleviate. But you know, we need our U.S. oil for sure. Uh, we need Canadian oil. And uh, I can think we're going to continue to rue the day that uh, that the Keystone Pipeline uh, got picked on so badly. Yeah, well, that's the thing. So, you know, you've got Biden policies are very much anti-fossil fuel. You've got all the climate people, uh, the Green New Deal stuff. Um, FERC waging war against pipelines, the SEC waging war against um, fossil fuel companies. Maybe the Federal Reserve, if this woman, uh, Sarah Bloom Raskin, becomes the top uh, Fed supervisor for banking. I mean, she wants to stop allocating. She she wants to prevent any bank loans to fossil fuel companies. I mean, I would think they're gun-shy, okay? I mean, it's the best in the world. We're the most efficient, most innovative in the world. We should be producing much more. John, I mean, we were 13 million-plus barrels per day. We're still around, what, 11 million-plus barrels per day? Uh, That's that's jacked up the price as the world economy has recovered. Um, Senator Haggerty said, you know, these policy measures holding back supply, we're helping uh, to finance Russia with high oil prices. Yeah, and and really a lot of other bad actors, Larry. I mean, you know, usually the oil-producing countries aren't necessarily our friends or certainly not our best friends. Um, and we've always had an issue, uh, certainly, with that. And, yeah, this is helping Vladimir Putin. That's why, And that's what the killer is going to be. Excuse me. I didn't mean to put it that way. But the hard part of this situation with Ukraine is going to be if we do slap sanctions on Russia, that impacts their ability to export oil. Sure, the Russians are going to pay for it, but uh, so are the rest of us. When you hear President Biden allude to pain for everyone, I, I think that's sort of what he's sort of trying to prepare everyone for because it could be an epic energy crisis if the, if Russia turns off the spigot because we cannot afford to lose those barrels and uh, there's no place to make them up the Saudis can't make it up we can't make it up Canada can't make it up um, so we'll, we will really be uh, in a tight spot and you know all these pressures it's it's so um, just misguided to me I, I get the, the, the worry about the, the climate and, and all that and whatever good measures you want to try to take for environmentally speaking to you know get the world to a, a better place is fine but um, look uh, energy is essential to our economy, the global mm. economy. And you saw now this past winter the, the missteps by the European leadership and the UK that got them into a, a total mess, you know, playing almost triple-digit oil equivalent prices for their natural gas, uh, for shortages uh, and the like. And every single of our one of our recessions over the past decades now, Larry, have been preceded by a spike higher in oil prices. There have been other mitigating factors, of course, which I could, I could enumerate, but Oil was always part of the problem, and that's what we're staring down. If they don't do this more, much more carefully than, than we have, you just can't, you know, literally flip the switch on this here. We need to needs to be a very orderly uh, and careful transition uh, to, to whatever, and especially including, I think, much more of a battery overlay so you can store the energy uh, so when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow like has happened in Texas, literally, uh, you can call on these reserves because that's what a gasoline in your gasoline tank is. It's stored energy 
to be ready for you on demand. And that's what's not being thought through here. Well, I don't see, I mean, if we run sanctions on the Russian Nord Stream 2, walk us through, that is going to impact natural gas prices, but it's going to really impact oil prices. The demand for oil is going to go up. Uh, I see, well, I see one big winner, Russia. I see another winner, uh, Saudi Arabia. Now, what does that do to the U.S.? I mean, it's going to, it's going to, really do damage to, I mean, it might help our producers. They'll make more money, I guess. It's going to kill our consumers. How does that play out? Well, I mean, exactly what you said. Uh, look, the, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, as much as, you know, it's it's problematic, you know, from a, a policy perspective, it's essential amount of fuel for, for, uh, for Europe. Uh, and, you know, the, the history of it is that the Germans are, have always been trying to make up for World War II with the Russians. And that's why I think uh, Angela Merkel thought she could, you know, sort of wrangle them as an Eastern as an East German person. So that's that's their sort of, you know, historic, uh, you know, fault. But, um, yeah, Larry, I mean, I always remind everybody, I mean, I know it's great news for our Texas producers, shale producers, New Mexico, uh, if these prices were to spike on this. But, yeah, our economy is two thirds the consumer. Uh, rise in gasoline prices, I know people might have heard it before, uh, is like a tax on folks because yeah. you're taking away from discretionary spending in other areas for clothing, entertainment, you name it, and it's going into the gas tank. And then it's making a way, a lot of it's making its way over uh, to Saudi Arabia and, uh, you know, Kuwait and Qatar and, and all those folks, you know, are the winners. I will say that uh, this should be very damaging, though, to the Russian economy if they get foreclosed uh, from the international markets. Uh, but again, they're like a drowning swimmer. They're going to take us down with them because the, uh, <laughs> the the energy landscape is just going to be apocalyptic. When do we get back to 13 million barrels a day? Let's. I'm waiting to see, Larry. I've been doing some. We've been crunching numbers here at uh, at my shop, and uh, we are expecting a, a decent sized ramp uh, over the course of the next several months. But we still mm. won't probably get to 12. It's going to be another couple of years potentially before we get to 13 again, especially because of again the pressures uh, that are being put on the industry and and being hamstrung uh, by the increased regulatory right. uh, environment. There's there's That's no two right. ways about that. They're just they're I mean, just not there's not in favor right now, and so they're not gonna they're gonna be held up at every turn for a while. Yeah, my pal Harold Ham, his brain is probably exploding at all this stuff. I mean, the cavalry's coming. This stuff's not going to be sustainable. But that's we we still got to get through the next seven or eight or nine months. I don't know how this is going to play out, John. I, it's not good. Would you agree with me? It's not good. It's not. It's it, it, it's a confluence of factors, Larry, that are just it's it's setting up like a, like a perfect storm, if you will. Given the, the how demand is racing back, we're going to be we, we are fully back to pre-pandemic levels. We'll probably have record energy demand globally uh, come the spring. Uh, because yeah. of the rebound in air travel, especially, yeah. we already know about the trucking difficulties. So, yeah, Larry, that coupled with a uh, a, a a clampdown on uh, emerging supplies ain't good. No, not good. John Kilda, thank you, my friend. Stay in touch. Appreciate it very much, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We're gonna c- take a quick break, and on the other side is Kelvin Dragemeyer, former director of the White House Office of Science and Technology. Why do we need a $350 billion bill, more spending, more inflation, now in the name of China competition, and it won't do a darn thing for China competition? I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. 
from Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Join us during the week, by the way, Fox Business, 4 p.m. Name of the show is Kudlow. Every day, 4 to 5 p.m. So I want to take a look at, come back to this issue of spending and inflation. I mean, it would be kind of cool if we spent less, less deficit spending, less Federal Reserve money creation. But no, no, no. Now we come up with this so-called China Competes Act which is up to $350 billion. We're going to be more like China, right? The government, government subsidies, corporate subsidies, corporate welfare, picking winners and losers, industrial policy. Let the state run. I mean, it is more like China Act. And anyway, we welcome to the show Kelvin Drugemeyer, great friend, former director of the White House Office of Science and Technology during the Trump administration. Currently, Kelvin is Professor of Meteorology at the University of Oklahoma. Kelvin, welcome, my friend. Welcome. Larry, good morning. Great to be with you. Thank you. Yep, thank you. So, Kelvin, um, honestly, $350 billion, really? I mean, you're the one that told me, just on the, the chips, the semiconductors, I guess there's $50 billion in there for semiconductors. You told me a week or two ago that the private sector is already spending $200 billion investment and you can bet it's going to be a damn sight more innovative and technologically advanced than what the government's going to do do we need this bill what is this going to accomplish besides spending more and more money well it's, it's a great question larry in fact if you look at the origin of the bill uh you know it started out uh, with with about a dozen bills that were passed with really strong bipartisan support in the house science committee in the house and a lot of this was stuff that you and I worked on when we were at the White House that impacted AI and 5G and quantum information science and things like that. But then, as oftentimes happens, a lot of ornaments got hung on that Christmas tree, a lot of unrelated things like Davis-Bacon and, and uh, some other policies, some other things that, that cost the uh, health care tax credit, uh, Davis-Bacon union policies, things like that. And also it softened uh, the wording on China. And so uh, it passed with, with pure uh, partisan support. It was not at all bipartisan, and that really is a problem. So the, the bill really ballooned up. And as you say, uh, private companies are investing $200 billion in building new facilities uh, around the country to do the fabrication of semiconductors, which is something that we are, are quite weak in, in fact. And about $39 billion of this bill, Larry, as you said, goes toward um, supporting those efforts. Uh, that's a lot of money, and I've talked to some people who say, well, you know, it really is going to provide a foundation for this. Uh, I don't know to what extent it's really partnering with these companies because a lot of these announcements were made before the bill got passed, and who knows what's going to happen in conference because now the Senate and the House are going to conference the bill and see. But, uh, but I think it's a real question of whether we're going to um, empower China a little bit by this. We've got to be very careful that we have guardrails for some of this work that will be done uh, to make sure that the, a lot of this work is not outsourced to China or in other ways uh, benefits China. Uh, because we know in China, basically, everything in the private sector somehow ties back to the Chinese Communist Party, and that's, uh, that's a very troubling thing. $45 billion for the Commerce Department to finance something called critical goods. I don't know what that is. $3 billion for solar manufacturing. That sounds like Solyndra. Eight billion dollars. This is my maybe my favorite. Eight billion dollars going to the UN Green Climate Fund. Really, eight billion to the UN Green Climate Fund. Um, a slush fund for the Energy Department. 
I mean, come on, Kelvin. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah, is so, this? <laughs> right. You know, these are some of these things. These are the things that were added. Uh, you know, the, the stuff that uh, that went through the House was done in regular order. There were hearings and there, there was a lot of discussion. The other things that got uh, parachuted in, none of that was done through regular order. It was just dropped in the bill, the things that you mentioned as well. And so this is really, really a concern. Now, there are some things in the bill that are that are good. Uh, one of the things that we do in the United States in semiconductors, we lead in basic research. So that's really understanding the fundamental properties of materials and things like that. So there are investments in uh, the Office of Science and Department of Energy and the National Science Foundation for that. But we have to be very careful because China does not do a lot of investment in basic research. And a lot of times they will steal our intellectual property and steal our research results. And, uh, and that's really a, a big issue. So I think that the whole point here is to make sure that we bolster uh, – our manufacturing capability and be able to uh, supply ourselves with these chips. You know, I think something like 70% of our military semiconductor chips come from China. And Mm. so we're very heavily leveraged against China. And Taiwan produces 90%, Larry, of the very, very sophisticated chips. If China makes a move on Taiwan, that puts uh, us and the rest of the world in a world of hurt. It really uh, creates a major, major problem. Well, Taiwan semiconductors come into Arizona. They're yes, building right, a big right. operation in Arizona. So that's good. Exactly. I mean, how that about this? We cut our taxes. Let's say we make the Trump tax cuts permanent. Full expensing, immediate 100% expensing, 21% corporate tax rate among the lowest in the world. We cut back on these crazy regulations that are being put in place by the Bidens. Make America more competitive. Make America the most hospitable place in the world uh, for investment. So we win the global war on capital. Why do I need government spending? I want the private sector to do it. Absolutely right. And, you know, the private sector invests about $40 billion a year, Larry, in R&D for semiconductors. The government invests about $6 billion a year. So they're already investing a lot. And what I would like to see is, is more partnering uh, in this. But you're right. I mean, if, if we really need to uh, look at the regulatory environment. In fact, in this bill, the, the House bill that you mentioned, the Competes Act, requires 166 government reports. We keep tying our hands, Larry. You and I dealt with this when we were in the White House. So looking at how we can uh, you know, deregulate, how we can uh, stop placing enormous burden on researchers and others to try to, you know, that when they're trying to do partnerships, when they're trying to work together and do creative things, we're burying them in red tape. And it's just, we're, so, you know, you take $10 billion, throw it at the wall, and what you get is about a billion dollars of return because of all the red tape and the wasted effort that uh, that goes into the work. It, very little of that money is actually going for the R&D. Uh, it's, it's really unfortunate. And we've got to do better because, you know, we don't want to become China, but China doesn't have that kind of regulatory framework. And uh, so we, we continue on the on the, on the, uh, the the idea of accountability and transparency. That's all well and good. But a lot of the regulations that we have have absolutely no practical purpose at all. So they while this bill's anybody. while this bill's being discussed, uh, Intel semiconductor company, which has not been great in recent years, but Intel goes out, at least they announced they're going to acquire uh, a big Israeli chip company, which is fine, right? They want to do that fine. But why do American taxpayers have to finance Intel's M&A program? Right. I think the key thing for us is to create an environment that incentivizes uh, industry investment and let the free market capital system do its right. thing. Right. Uh, I think, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's, that's you know, you, you look at over the years, over the decades, you know, the, the federal government has invested in, in the basic research, and then the private sector innovates on those outcomes. 
And so that, that system has worked extremely well. Now, like I said, I have talked to people who say this $39 billion is going to help. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but, uh, mm. but that's, that's right. kind of the policy that's been put Galvin forward. Galvin Drogemeyer, thank you, my friend. We appreciate it. We don't need thank this you, bill. I'm Cudlow. We're going to do some stock market work on the other side of the break. Please stay right here. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. All right, folks, this is Larry Kudlow. We're going to do some stock market work. I think one of the things, one of the things I think I think is that the financial markets are more or less not paying much attention to the Ukraine story. I mean, I don't want to overestimate that. Oil is at $91. But, you know, we didn't see any big crack-ups or massive runs against stocks. I mean, it wasn't a great week. The Dow was off 659 points. I think that's the second straight decline, 34,079. But it's been in the throes of a mild correction. I think the same is true for the uh, NASDAQ and the S&P 500. But everything was down last week. I'm just looking through my stock sheets here. Let's see, the 10-year note, a buck 92, actually off. It was over 2% for a while. Gold, gold fought, fell below $1,900. It was on a roll, but then it fell back. Crude oil, as I said, 91 bucks. The dollar's holding up pretty well. Dollar index is uh, over 96, so it's dead strong. The ten-year tips uh, break evens two ninety-three. Um, okay, it's been holding the high ground. The Fed target is two percent. We'll never see two percent again, at least for many, many years. But again, I don't see any great uh, stock market financial panic. Let's talk to our experts. My pal David Bonson, founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group. His new book is "There's No Free Lunch: Two Hundred and Fifty Economic Truths." And Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services and Chicago's leading restaurateur. So I'll start with Mr. Urio. Stocks, bonds, commodities, do they care about Ukraine, Jim Urio? No. So you, you mentioned the yield curve, and it began flattening in September to October, and it's gone from, you know, this twos to tens, I'm talking about, 129 to it's level 46 now. And there's not been any real acceleration as the rhetoric of the Ukraine-Russia situation has ramped up at all. So I think what the yield curve is telling us is that the Fed is concentrating on normalizing, I'm doing air quotations, short end rates, and at the same time still buying long end, and that there's a possibility that they overcorrect. And forces into a recession because there's you know, an argument that we were slowing already. Probably one of the reasons we were slowing is because inflation was burning so hot because, you know, inflation does have the capacity to burn itself out if prices start to get ridiculous, provided we're not in that big you know, wage spiral that they want so badly. But the inflation part, I'm glad because I just was reading this thing about Senator Menendez talking again about how it's corporate greed that's causing inflation <laughs> right know. now. And just what am I what are we supposed to do when they say <laughs> stuff like that? I, I'm so confused. I just want to take a nap. Uh, but anyway, I think that the market. I'm in favor large. of corporate greed. Wait a second. I love I'm in favor of corporate greed. Corporate greed. <laughs> right. <Yes. laughs> uh, 
sorry. I didn't mean to ruin your train of thought. <laughs> I don't even know where I was now. Yeah, but I would, just to finish off, I don't think the markets aside from oil particularly care that much. I actually took off some downside hedges at the end because I think there was some a little bit of worry um, going into a three-day weekend about the potential for things to happen. The stock market's job is supposed to worry about uncertainty, and on Tuesday there will be more certainty, uh, good or bad, and presumably good. So, Dave Bonson, uh, I'm going to ask you the same question. Does the stock market care about Ukraine? Somebody's got to care about Ukraine. I don't know. Um, economy, not so fragile. Not so fragile. Wages are rising. Of course, prices are rising a lot. Uh, I know you don't really buy into the inflation story, but prices are rising. Wages are rising. Employment is rising. Retail gasoline is rising. S&P earnings, I don't know, they could be up 30% in the fourth quarter. Uh, M2 is rising. Maybe it'll slow down if they stop spending so much, but that's not until the cavalry arrives in November. So, David Bonson, how does Ukraine inform your investment strategy? Well, it doesn't inform my investment strategy, but I do think that Ukraine was a big factor in volatility this week. You talked about the Dow was down 600 on the week, but it actually was up 500 one day. It was down 600 another day. It had a few days that were down two or 300. So there was enhanced volatility. We've had more days this year where the futures were pointing one way in the morning and it ended up closing differently than we had all of last year. And so you've already had a significant volatility just from pre- and post-market activity to live market activity. That's usually a sign of enhanced daily vol. I think that's somewhat related to headline stuff. I definitely agree with Jim. Yesterday you had these weekend traders, you know, wanting to put positions on coming into a three-day weekend. Uh, but I don't think the market would know why. I don't think the market would say, like, oh, we're afraid of Russia invading because of X. Mm. It's more just the, the general uncertainty of it. And then the one exception is definitely in the energy side. And if anything, I, I was coming to you when I was on your TV show this week. The fact that oil has hung in there in the 90s really makes me think that some of this is not as much Ukraine-Russia as we might have thought, that even if you get a resettling of the commodity price, uh, the supply-demand fundamentals right now, take out your short-term players and speculators. You, you might be at an $85 baseline for crude oil right now. That's, that's not a good thing. Is that a Ukraine thing or is that a strong economy thing? Um, I, I think it's a supply-demand imbalance thing. So the strong economy part's the demand side, but then the um, supply side is policy-driven. It's favoring Middle Eastern oil producers over Oklahoma and Texas. Right. Biden's doing everything he can to cut oil supplies at exactly the wrong moment. I mean, whether whether you look at it from a security standpoint or from an economic standpoint. It's corporate greed, Larry. How dare you suggest it's not corporate greed. <laughs> it's corporate greed. I know. Last week I tweeted, if the government really wanted the price of oil to go down, they should start by stopping forcing it up. I mean, that seems like the, <laughs> the proper first step, but they don't seem to see it that way. And Let me ask you a question. Greed, corporate greed, when you talk about energy, is specifically moving the corporate greed from Exxon to Middle Eastern, uh, you know, authoritarian. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. So, you know, you look at the paper this morning, the journal, uh, frackers hold back production 
as global oil markets tighten. Now, the frackers have their own individual stories, but uh, that's the government. The government is coming down hard. Every part of the government is against fossil fuels. We, we had FERC this week. Gonna, we, we'll probably never build another pipeline, at least as long as Joe Biden is president. And you've got the SEC coming against fossil fuels. Uh, you've got this crazy uh, Raskin woman who uh, may or may not get through. She's going to be the top Fed bank supervisor. She wants to take bank credit away from fossil fuel companies. Larry Fink wants to take investment money away from fossil fuel companies. So, I, I, I mean, I'd say that's government greed or something. It's government mistakes. But I'm just interested that uh, there's no panic in the markets regarding Ukraine. There's just no panic at all. Now, that may prove to be wrong. I mean, Russia may take over the entire country. Um, NATO countries surrounding Ukraine, like Poland and Hungary, I don't know what they're going to do about this. So the story could get a whole lot worse. But you really don't quite see it. I mean, David, you're right, volatility. But the VIX is at 28. Is You know, that ain't the worst thing I've ever seen. No, no, but it um, had been, you know, in the mid-teens again. And then between your, your kind of earlier year tech market volatility and then this back in the headlines with Ukraine, it's pushed up higher. But I think where the market will be wrong is when the market does correct when Russia does go in. Then you're going to get a sell-off, and people won't really know why they're they're selling off other than just the kind of, you know, immediate impact of uncertainty. And a few days later, we'll realize that uh, the various companies that make up the earnings flow of the market are not going to be impacted by it, as the exception will continue to be on the energy side. And can I, I, think can I add that, something um, real quick about the volatility, David? Yeah. Is that you know we've talked about Ukraine, and um, I should have waited for an answer for that, by the way. Sorry about that. But we've talked about the volatility that Ukraine and Russia have created. At the beginning of this year, every one of us would have said we're at a major inflection point about rate policy going forward. And the one thing you know, that we can argue all day about whether or not the stock market can handle a two-year that's at 1.5 instead of zero, but the one thing we all agreed on then is that the move towards normalizing rates was going to be fraught with huge volatility. So that was going to be there anyway. You do agree with that, don't you? Oh, I do. And I think I think that what you're going to end up seeing here is that risk off brings some of these yields lower, right? And so then you have competing forces going on because this year, this week, the 10-year went from 205 to 192. Mm. And, and, and yet the yield curve actually widened by about four bips because it no tightened so much the week before. No one's afraid of the Fed. No one's afraid of the Fed. We'll come to talk about that in the other side of the break. I'll take a quick break. Dave Bonson, founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group. Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services. We'll talk some Fed talk right after this quick break. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking stocks. We've got David Bonson, founding managing partner of the Bonson Group, and Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services. I want to talk about the Fed in the last minutes here. But Jim Urio, how are your restaurants doing as a sign, as an economic indicator? You know, it's one of my favorites. No, and it's one of my favorites, too, and I had no idea um, how, like, it would be of such a broad representation of consumer inflation because it's just the inputs are so so broad at a restaurant. And I, we, I just had a meeting with my partner, um, 
last week in our labor costs, you know, they've raised minimum wage twice in the last 14 months in Illinois up to 12 bucks an hour, which is, you know, I mean, we try to get high school kids to do those jobs, teach them job skills, and we're going to have to move away from that. But anyway, how's our restaurant? Our restaurant is doing, uh, it's slowed down quite a bit. We're hoping that, you know, in a couple weeks, the sun comes out and, and it's harder to make a buck because our, our input costs have gone up 18 to 20 percent. This week is the first week that we caved and had to raise prices by 8 percent. But the rest, restaurant industry, I think, is hurting very, very badly. Several of our friends who helped us along the way at the beginning have gone out of business um, in restaurants that were, you know, that were decades old and, you know, family places. And it's really, it's really sad what they've done. And you, you, when you look at all of it, you can't, I can't imagine that it's not almost done intentionally. It seems so weird being in the state of Illinois and then saying, oh, yeah, by the way, you got to pay kids four bucks an hour more. Uh, it's just atrocious. So we had an import price number uh, up 11% for the 12 months ending in January. Kevin Warsh, former Federal Reserve governor, smart fella, uh, he comes on the Fox Business show, Cudlow, and he wants a regime change, David Bonson, regime change. In other words, quit signaling the markets, quit talking about little teeny quarter points. The only way inflation expectations are going to change is a Volcker-like regime change, uh, which would probably mean um, one percentage point rate hikes in several months, no advance warning to the marketplace, uh, just change the expectations because inflation is here. So what's going to happen with the Fed? What's your expectation? Right now, the markets... Again, don't seem particularly concerned about the Fed or Ukraine. Well, let me start with what's not going to happen. And it's every single thing you just said that that guy is recommending. Every single bit of it. There's no Volcker. There's no 100 basis points. And there's certainly no elimination of guidance. I mean, this Fed is going to guide forward for the rest of our lives. They are never going to surprise us. We could do a quarter point rate hike in each of the next five years. Oh, <laughs> and, the, and, and, and the inflation rate will stay at 12. Yeah, my, my, my friend uh, Ben Shapiro wrote this great article about like some of the things going on in the economy, and he sent it to me and said, Dave, you know, you're kind of my economic guy. Can you make a couple comments? And he had said how they're talking about the Fed doing a Volcker-like thing going up to a one or one and a half percent Fed funds rate. And I go, Ben, Volcker brought it to, to 10 <laughs> percent. I mean, Volcker, no. Listen, the Fed is going to throw in the towel and the market knows it. And this is where you mentioned earlier, I don't believe the inflation story. And I think it's more nuanced than that. But I know what you mean, because I am one who believes that ultimately the secular cycle is still more disinflationary and more Japanified. But in the period we're in with supply bottlenecks, the excess liquidity and so forth, my main point, Larry, is that if the Fed did bring the Fed funds rate to something Volcker-like, it's not the only source of the inflation. That ultimately the Fed knows what I know, which is that the 7% number that gets so much attention right now is not going to be the number we're talking about. And so this is my concern for people like me who do value a strong dollar is that in a year we're going to have 3 or 4% inflation. And guess what? That's way too high. And yet everyone's going to be talking about how it came down 3 or 4%, mm -hmm. and it will be the Fed's excuse to chicken out and once again 
coddle credit markets because they know our government cannot afford its debt and they know the levered financial system cannot afford its debt so that's where i think this goes 12 months from now what do you think jimmy Ariel? we're talking about that same fed who's buying long-end bonds currently right now who's actually <laughs> engaged in quantitative easing to the tune of what is it is it 60 billion a month is that what they've come down to this is it's absurd that we're having even this conversation first of all i don't believe the 7.5 percent um print in in cpi which they're still you know the highest in 42 years i think it's much higher than that i think it's the contrived price index and i think it's designed to make inflation look less bad than it is um so inflation is worse than it is and the fed is buying bonds so i think they're ever going to be paul volcker and start you know attacking inflation with the with the sword no i, I don't think that's going to happen at all i think they're going to and remember, I, you know, the, the market doesn't care necessarily about a dovish Fed. What the market wants is a Fed, I mean, a, a hawkish Fed. They want a Fed that's not as hawkish as they should be. That's mm-hmm. what makes markets happy. And so right now their pivot is, you know, I mean, stock market's still holding in pretty good, like you said. Well, maybe the stock, maybe it's time to buy stocks. Sort of take the Fed head on, not worry about them. They're not going to have a regime change. They're not going to raise rates by 1% in intermediate actions, which is what I want. And so maybe you buy stocks. I mean, profits look pretty strong, David Bonson. Yeah, but the problem, Larry, is it was priced for that. Profits are strong, but if you get full year, okay, so fourth quarter doesn't help us because it was still coming off of a very low profit growth from a year earlier. But we are best-case scenario looking at 15% profit growth this year, and it's mm-hmm. probably 8 9 or 10%. That's consensus is about 9%. With a 9% on a forward multiple, you're still at 22 times earnings. So what are we going to do, get 15%, and then we come all the way down to 21 times earnings? It's a great time to buy stocks for active managers that are buying things that are out of favor and buying things that valuation is dislocated. But I do not think that the fang-heavy cap-weighted indexes Mm. are attractive, even with Ukraine out of the way and even with the Fed concerns out of the way. You have to be more selective, and I think Jim Irio agrees with me. Amen, brother. I got to go. Ukraine will be out of the way. Russians going to own it in a couple of days, or at least that's what people are saying. That's what Joe Biden is saying. Gentlemen, thank you very much, David Bonson, Jim Urio. Terrific stuff. Folks, hang out with us. We're going to do some money in politics with uh, Liz Peek and Steve Moore right after this. The truckers are coming to the U.S. The Freedom Convoy is coming. The Freedom Convoy is coming. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. By the way, join us during the week, Fox Business. The name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time. And we're going to do some money in politics here. We've got Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, Hill columnist. And we've got Steve Moore from Freedom Works and the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. And this new book he's got, Godzilla, How... The relentless growth of government is devouring our economy and our freedoms. Speaking of our freedom, kids, welcome back. Liz, Liz Peake, the, the People's Convoy is coming. The Freedom Convoy, the People's Convoy. Justin Trudeau yeah. <laughs> Justin Trudeau had such a brilliant uh, way of handling this in Canada. Now we'll see how Joe Biden does. But what can you tell us about the truckers are going to start in California? 
on February 22nd, couple days, and then gradually make their way to the nation's capital before President Biden's State of the Union address on March 1st. What's going on here, Liz? Well, I, I think they'll be lucky if it's just one convoy. There are talk, There's talk of as many as three different convoys, one starting in Texas and one maybe in Ohio. Uh, and here's the thing, Larry. This trucker convoy in Canada really became sort of a mouthpiece for all kinds of grievances and frustrations about COVID regulations. And I think that is only mounting. It's not only the vaccine mandates for truckers, it's vaccine mandates, period. And it is mask mandates for children in schools, which everybody agrees. Everyone who's done any reading on the subject is a completely ridiculous stop to the teachers union. But I think it is really interesting to note how Justin Trudeau got into so much trouble on this uh, trucker convoy. Yes, he's now invoked emergency powers. A screaming headline in the New York Times talks about mass arrests. Paragraph 12, you find out that 100 people were arrested as they mostly politely and peacefully dispersed once the police began to move in. My point all along has been that Trudeau should have talked to the truckers. He should have shown some flexibility, said, look, this mandate uh, isn't that, uh, you know, doesn't affect that many people. We will postpone it for two weeks. Let's talk about this. Instead, he just went into hiding, started calling these people racist and sort of accusing them of being violent protesters. It is particularly given his background of kneeling with the Black Lives Matter protests and uh, approving and sitting down with other groups of protesters in the past. This has really been an egregious uh, slap in the face at people, you know, average Canadians. And, and let's say to thousands of average Canadians came out to cheer these people on because everybody is fed up with these uh, mandates and, and all the restrictions on their lives. You know, Trudeau, I, I know Justin Trudeau fairly well, but Trudeau is, you know, Canada is sort of a peaceful country, respectful yeah. of each rights. He's kind of turned himself into Vladimir Putin in a mere few weeks because of a couple of trucks. I mean, the guy's just lost his mind. But um, Steve Moore, I want to read you. Uh, musician Ted Nugent was on Fox, and he says, um, he, he, I love this. He says uh, about the truckers, I know these guys. I am these guys, Mr. Nugent said. I got a big zebra Ford Bronco with 900 horsepower that gets exactly 600 yards to the gallon. So I'm going to go join those guys and make sure that the middle finger stays on fire. (laughs) I love that. Ted Nugent, a spokesman for freedom. But in, you know, Steve, this is, I think, Liz's points are very well taken. I think this really morphs itself into a populist revolt against all this big government socialism and clamping down on our freedoms. And it really, it goes, I think it runs, it becomes a generic grievance against all the stuff that's been going on with Joe Biden and, and, and government mandates and government orders. And, and even, you know what, I'm going to throw in critical race theory where, you know, if you disagree with somebody, you, you're not allowed to. And the social media won't let people express their freedom of, of uh, speech. I mean, I really see this as a sort of generic populist revolt.
something really, really big going on in the United States and, and really around the world uh, that the left isn't paying attention to, which is a kind of revolt of working class Americans. And by the way, this wasn't a bunch of rich Wall Street bad cats that were protesting. These were these are blue collar workers. These are truckers, many of them who own who are members of unions. Gee, yeah. I thought that's who the Democrats represented. And the, I think the most interesting thing about what's happened in the last two or three weeks, and by the way, let me say this, I do not believe the truckers have the rights to block, you know, block the bridges and things like that. I think it's certainly appropriate for the police to say, look, you can protest, but you don't have a right to shut down, you know, commerce and so on. But here's the point. The, the, the left has been so indignant. How dare these people question the authorities? You know, how dare they question the, quote, science? And, you know, I think the three of us are old enough to remember when the left used to have, you know, uh, mottos like, you know, question authority and so on. And the left has become such authoritarians mm. that they're in, they hold these people in total contempt. And I want to make one other quick point. Do not ignore what happened in San Francisco this past week, a state, a city where Donald Trump won, I think, 12 percent of the vote in San Francisco. So it's probably the most liberal place in America by 70 percent, Larry, 70 percent of the voters in San Francisco voted to recall the school board in San Francisco. If that's happening in San Francisco, there's something really there's a revolt going on against what you and Liz are talking about, this progressive wokeism. People are sick of it. You know, Liz, it has Tea Party overtones. Yeah, it sure does. It's different, but it has Tea Party. It's a revolt against the establishment. In this case, it's the, you know, far left radical establishment. But that's the way I see it. I mean, I I love the truckers. By the way, trucking, you know, I think something like 70 or 75 percent of the goods uh, transported in America are done by trucks. So it's very important. The economics here are very important. But I see this in larger terms. I see this as a new Tea Party. Yeah, I think also what's interesting is that Obama, if you remember, completely dismissed the Tea Party, ignored them. I remember writing a column in the headline was something like, Obama ignores Tea Party at his peril. Well, guess what? Biden's going to do the same thing. And you can be sure that he will have no patience for this group, even though the Teamsters to Steve's point, came out big time in their support of Biden in the campaign. Lots of money, lots of mailings, lots of hands-on efforts to get votes out, et cetera. Those were truck drivers. But it really wasn't truck drivers. It was union bosses that, that Biden was getting the support of. And I think people are going to begin to see there's a big difference, right? There's a big difference between the union leadership, big labor leadership, uh, donating political money to Democrats and helping with their campaigns and the people in those unions not being supportive at all of what's going on. Uh, as to the, the situation in San Francisco, I think we can all just applaud the fact that parents in lots of places, Virginia, San Francisco and elsewhere, even in New York, are standing up and saying, our kids are not being taught. And, and instead, they are being uh, they are being subjected to all this woke ideology. I, I have a friend, Larry, who has a five year old daughter in one of the most prestigious girl girl schools in New York and the country. This five year old girl came home twice in one week saying, Mommy, 
how much melatonin do you have in your skin? <laughs> Twice. <laughs> Can you imagine? This mother was horrified, and she went, she demanded of the school some description of what they were teaching that week in class. This is, again, five years old. And the, the study schedule showed uh, a, a series of days spent on skin tone. Now, I, I don't know about you. I find that unbelievably offensive. Young children are being raised in our country today to be colorblind. We were making so much progress on this. My kids didn't even know the difference between black and white when they were little kids. They, they were being raised in a colorblind society. Boy, have we gone backwards on that. And shame on the people who are directing that uh, regression. And I think it's a serious regression. You know, Steve Moore, uh, after this, San Francisco threw out the three members of the Board of Education. You know, next thing you know, New York City is going to start throwing criminals into yeah. jail. They're going to start jailing criminals. Never. Yeah, gee, what a concept. Well, look, I mean, the broader point here is you're exactly right. This is the new Tea Party movement. The left has ignored it. They're tea, they're they're uh, treating the protesters with contempt. Uh, and by the way, these these folks in Canada, with a few exceptions, were completely nonviolent. The the Washington Post, the New York Times, the, the CNN, uh, as, as Liz was saying, they 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 called them Nazis. They called them racist they how dare they you know stand up against these uh these forces of good and i think some i just think something big is brewing in this country if the democrats don't figure out that they're completely out of touch with real americans that and america is not washington dc and new york uh they're gonna they're gonna get clobbered i mean yeah. i think you're gonna see a sweeping election like we saw in 1994 and yeah. 2010 where people just take their anger out at anybody with a D next to their name, unless if I were Joe Biden, I would do what Liz is suggesting. I'd say, I hear you. We hear you. You know, we will respond to you, not teach, treat them with, you know, well, as if they're children. Yeah. He'll send Kamala Harris uh, to do that. By the way, <laughs> I got to take a quick break. I got to take a quick break. Uh, but I want to get me one of these zebra Ford Broncos, man. This is the best thing I've seen yet. Anyway, We've got Liz Peek and Steve Moore. We're talking money and politics. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, why are foundations founded on high technology now subsidizing socialist think tanks? Think about that. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. We're talking to Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, and Steve Moore, FreedomWorks and Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Steve Moore, this uh, circular from your Unleash, let's get this right, two philanthropies, the Hewlett Foundation and the Almond Yard Networks, contributing $41 million over five years to five academic institutions in order to overturn Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman and yeah. the principles of smaller government and uh, free trade and deregulation. Now, this the Hewlett Foundation, I mean, Hewlett and Packard, these were entrepreneurial tech guys who thrived <laughs> oh, under free market them. capitalism, yeah. and now their descendants want to overturn it. 
it is such a depressing story. So, you know, uh, David uh, Packard, you know, built that computer company, which was really the beginning of the digital age in his in his garage <laughs> and uh, built it into a multi-billion dollar uh, company that, that employed tens of thousands of people. And as you just said, it was it was created uh, and flourished because of our free enterprise system. And now you have this uh, foundation in his name that is dedicating $40 million to fight against the freedom revolution and the free enterprise revolution that began with Hayek and Milton Friedman and Ronald Reagan and through Trump. And it is, it is so disheartening that this is how the money uh, of someone who, who uh, created one of America's iconic companies is, is being used. There is a, uh, there is a huge movement in America against freedom. And this is part of it. You know, Liz, world bank studies have shown that um, free market capitalism, free tr- including free trade, is responsible for bringing over a billion people yep. in recent decades, yep. over a billion people out yep. of poverty. And here we go with the descendants of these two free market entrepreneurs trying to overturn probably the greatest anti-poverty mm-hmm. ideology ever invented. Yeah, I mean, it's really disheartening, as as Steve said. If you could add Abigail Disney to that list, I'm sure there are many others. It's really this white liberal guilt that causes people to uh, rebuke the very system that made them wealthy. And they feel terrible about their wealth, their inherited wealth. Instead of funding a, a system that will keep other people from having similar successes, and that's really what they're doing here, they should just yeah. give it away. Just give away all their money. If they feel terrible about it, I'll take it. You'll take it. You know, find, <laughs> right. find some uh, happy recipients and make a lot of people happy. But, yeah. but really, to the bigger point, we have a really undermining and um, very disturbing trend in our country where not only uh, are they refusing to look at data like that, Larry, they're refusing to look at what's going on in Venezuela, once one of the wealthiest right. nations on earth, and it's complete catastrophic collapse. The fact that the USSR failed, it didn't fail because of Ronald Reagan. It failed because their economic policies simply didn't work. I think in China, uh, the the problem is the left has been um, energized by the success of China. But ultimately, I don't believe China will continue to grow and prosper. Their latest 20 years of success has really been because they embraced a modest form of capitalism and let people strive. The striving and opportunity and success of individuals is the hallmark of the United States. And and honestly, it's, I, I, it makes me crazy that young people are taught that that is not worth anything. It is every American to talk to their kids about why our system works, why it's great, why all people deserve opportunity. They do not deserve equal outcomes. They do deserve equal opportunity and unfortunately because of democrats they don't get that our schools are not providing that but you know liz Liz, add to just sorry to interrupt but add to that how about the rockefeller foundation the rockefeller family they're against they're against fossil fuels (laughs) 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 it's fabulous the greatest greatest, uh you know uh energizer uh of, of the world that really provided the fuel 
an energy for the modern industrial revolution. <laughs> and they're, they're spending all their money to try to set, shut down oil and gas and coal. And as I've said many times on your show, Larry, this country was built on oil, gas, and coal. Yes. So, Steve, uh, go ahead. Let's raise some money and fight these guys. We have to. We must. I mean, because the, so much of the, of the philanthropic money now goes to, to defeat capitalism. And you made the key point, Larry, and I want to repeat it. Many estimates are that more than a billion people in the last 25 to 30 years, it was started with the Reagan revolution, have been moved out of abject poverty. And most of them are in India and China that, that mm-hmm. have moved. You know, Now, China's moving in the opposite direction right now, which yeah. makes me nervous. But come on, how can, how can free, tra- free trade? That has lifted more people out of poverty than every anti-poverty program in the history of the civilization. Yeah, it's a tragedy. I like the Rockefeller one because they're all against fossil fuels, and that's where their fortune came from. And that's what drove drove the world economy for the last couple hundred years and will con- continue. Joe Biden notwithstanding will continue to drive the economy for the next hundred years. But it is a sad say. I mean, it's, it's, it's in the same category as Liz's story about the five-year-old coming home. Yeah. I mean, they are just trying to change history, to change culture, to change everything that is uh, right. And it's a tragedy. Yeah. But you know what? The cavalry's coming. The polls yeah. show clearly. People, I, I love America. Americans are rejecting this nonsense, yeah. okay? They are rejecting this nonsense. And that's probably the best part of the story. I agree. Even Hillary Clinton is rejecting it. When you say the cavalry is coming, do you include Hillary Clinton in that, Harry? Yes, I, I so much want her to run for president. You have no idea. It does my heart so much good to see her in New York uh, making her new debut on the world stage. I just can't really? wait for that to happen. So, all right, um, what else have we got? Oh, Larry, Anything? Larry, one, one, Larry, one quick thing. Congratulations. I see that your ratings for the Cudno Show are off the charts. You're doing a fantastic job, and uh, Liz and I are, I think I can speak for Liz, proud to be part of that. So congratulations. You two are two key parts of that. You helped us so much. We've had a great first year. Uh, I do want to thank Joe Biden for our great first year also. (laughs) Yes, an endless stream of things to rant about. I mean, you know, what could be more energizing than Joe Biden in the White House? Anyway, thank you, both of you. You're wonderful, Liz Peake and Steve Moore. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. We will be back next weekend.